Welcome to the Politics Guys interview, conversations about American politics, economics, history, and culture with authors and researchers from across the ideological spectrum. I'm Michael Baranowski, a political scientist at Northern Kentucky University. My guest today is University of Maryland cultural psychologist Michelle Gelfin. Dr. Gelfin uses field, experimental, computational, and neuroscience methods to understand the evolution of culture, as well as its multi-level consequences for human groups. Her work has been cited over 20,000 times and has been featured in numerous national outlets, including the Washington Post, the New York Times, the Boston Globe, National Public Radio, Voice of America, Fox News, NBC News, ABC News, and The Economist. Her latest book and the topic of our conversation today is Rule Makers, Rule Breakers, How Tight and Loose Cultures Wire the World. Michelle Gelfand, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. You know, you study culture, which to me at least feels like something that we often maybe not overlook, but certainly underappreciate in, in my field, pol- political science. Um, you know, there's a saying that I heard recently from the business world, I guess, uh, culture eats strategy for breakfast. And I've always realized, right away after I heard it, I was like, wow, it just really resonates with me because I think it sort of gets at how fundamentally important culture is. And so I think you'd be a great person to ask this question of, uh, why is culture so important? Uh, that's a great question, Michael. And I think the answer is, is pretty simple. Culture, which humans have invented, is really key to our survival. When I think about culture, and I'll, my work is on social norms, um, we just couldn't operate as societies without social norms or these unwritten standards for human behavior. Uh, you know, sometimes it takes us, um, sometimes we have to step back um, to think about what would life be without culture, without social norms? I mean, imagine a world where people were always late and trains and buses and airplanes didn't abide by any fixed schedule. Or imagine that everyone woke up whenever they wanted and left their house without putting clothes on. Um, or imagine boarding an elevator and finding people singing and shaking their umbrellas on each other and facing the wrong direction. Or being on the city street and littering heedlessly and, and, and driving on both sides of the road. In these, in these cases, you can imagine a world without social norms where people don't have any agreed upon standards of behavior. They couldn't predict each other. We couldn't uh, coordinate our actions to any extent. And, and every institution we have, whether it was political or educational, our police system, uh, our families and organizations, they would splinter apart if we didn't have social norms. So it's this incredible human invention, social norms, that helps us survive and coordinate in an unprecedented way. Yeah, absolutely. But, you know, it also seems to me that it's not like all those things you mentioned. I don't think about not shaking my umbrella in the in the elevator or anything like that. And it seems to me like a lot of culture is, is maybe like that. I don't know that, that it's so incredibly pervasive, I guess, that it's almost invisible in some way. And I'm wondering if maybe that's part of the reason why it's such a powerful driver of what we do. Yeah, this is, this is exactly right. You know, there's this old uh, adage of two fish swimming along, and they happen to meet an older fish swimming the other way, and who nods at them and says, you know, morning, boys, how's the water? And the two fish swim on a bit, and eventually one of them looks to the other and says, what the hell is water? <laughs> right. And the point of this story is really that a lot of the important realities um, are, are often uh, important realities around us are the ones that are hardest to see. And in this book, in Rulemakers, Rule Breakers, I try to make uh, social norms explicit and, and un- help people understand this pervasive um, force 
uh, and use it to our advantage um, and, and help to really um, understand this omnipresent but invisible force around us. Now, in the book, you look at culture in terms of what you call the tightness and the looseness. And so I'll do a, a real social science sort of thing and say, can you define your terms here? What do you mean by tight and loose? Sure. So, you know, as I mentioned, all, all groups have social norms or unwritten standards of behavior. We need them in order to survive. But some groups adhere more closely to social norms than others. They're what they call tight cultures or rule makers. Uh, they have strong norms and they have little tolerance for deviance, strong punishments for violating social norms. Other cultures are what we call loose cultures. They have much more variability and they're much more permissive. Uh, they're rule breakers, we call them. And so this distinction, tight and loose, is, turns out to be really important for understanding human behavior from our politics to our parenting, uh, from nations to our neurons. Um, and so that's that's really the gist of what tight and loose is. And, and so let's take, for instance, tight cultures. I mean, what, what's, the, what's the advantage, I guess, or the advantages of, of being tight, of, of you know, of uh, adhering to those norms? It's a great question. And I, I often get asked, you know, which is better, you know, tight or loose? And the answer is really neither. It really depends on your vantage point, and each has its own strengths and its own liabilities, um, depending on your perspective. And the simple way to describe the trade-off is order versus openness. So tight cultures, uh, whether they're nations, states, or organizations, they tend to have more order. Uh, they have, let's take at the national level, they have lower crime. Uh, they have more monitoring, more police per capita, more security um, devices around, and and, and and when people feel monitored and more accountable, they behave themselves more. Um, they also tend to be more synchronized. This goes into the kind of sense of order. Uh, even as a sort of fun fact, even city clocks um, are more uh, synchronized. They, they tend to stay at the same time in tight cultures, and they tend to stay very different times in loose cultures, as I talk about in the book. And then also another very important strength of tight cultures, they have some more self-control. Uh, they have less debt. They have less alcoholism. And they even have uh, less obesity. Um, so they're, they're, they're really self-regulated because of the potential for strong punishment. So they have a lot of order. And, on the, and, and loose cultures struggle with these kinds of issues. They're more disorganized. They have more crime, less monitoring. They're less synchronized. And they have a host of self-regulation failures. From that, it sure sounds like that the advantages are almost all toward tight cultures. But I, I, I'm guessing it's not nearly as simple as that, right? That's right. So, you know, if tight cultures corner the market on order, loose cultures have the market on openness. Our research shows that they're more open to different types of people, uh, to different ideas, and to change more generally. And this includes, you know, greater creativity, patents per capita. It includes um, less ethnocentrism, more tolerance of people who are stigmatized, um, from immigrants um, to the mentally ill. And it includes being more open to change when change might be beneficial. And here's where tight cultures struggle. Uh, even if they're more orderly, they tend to be less creative. They tend to be much more ethnocentric, uh, less tolerant of people might, who might threaten the social order. And they tend to be much more resistant to change or have much more cultural inertia. And so this is a really direct trade-off that we can see with tight loose cultures, order versus openness. And, and this is something I think almost everyone kind of gets the idea that 
some places just seem looser or tighter than others. But I mean, you didn't obviously just stop there. As a as a, a scientist, you actually really examined this. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about really the very extensive research you did to to, to back up the, these theories. Sure. You know, I started out being really interested in, in tight moves based on just anecdotal observations. You know, being in Germany and observing people waiting patiently on the street corner, even when there's no cars around, compared to my own home city, New York City, where people will jaywalk even with their babies in tow. You know, this is a good and obtrusive observation of tight moves. Or being in Singapore, I, I do a lot of research in Singapore, and it's, it's known as the fine city because people can get punished for everything from spitting uh, to littering to, to singing too loudly. Uh, as compared to a place like New Zealand, where there's a great degree of latitude from protest to prostitution that's legalized, even to seeing people walk barefoot in banks. <laughs> you know, so you see lots of variability around the world. Um, and I was really interested to see, can we actually measure this and, 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 and really understand what causes the evolution of tightness and looseness? Does it make any sense? Is it evolved for any good reasons? And what are the consequences? So I started by looking at people across nations. We surveyed about 7,000 people across 30 nations, and we developed measures of, of the perception of Northstrand in these countries. And we could see that people share their perceptions of how much latitude or constraint there is in their national context. Um, and so places, for example, like Pakistan and Japan and, and Singapore and Turkey and former East Germany fell very tight on our index. Uh, and places like Spain and New Zealand and the Netherlands, Greece, uh, the Ukraine, uh, fell on more on the loose side. It's a continuum. Uh, and so we can see um, that we can rank order cultures on tightness and looseness. And what was really exciting is that we can then use this idea, this metric, to see, well, is it just modern nations? Do, do traditional societies vary on it? And, and they do. We've just recently analyzed hundreds of traditional societies through the human relation area file to see that, wow, we can see the same distinction as differentiated groups for millennia. Um, and we can also then say, well, let's go further. Can we see state variation in tight moves? Can we see organizational variation? Can we see it in our households? Like, we all have our own tight moves mindset. How does that affect our relationships, our parenting styles? Uh, as a mother of two teenagers, I could say it's really useful to use the tight moves terminology. Right. Our kids. So it's really a broad dimension that uh, differentiates human groups um, across time and also space. Now, are there any like really clear similarities between these cultures? I mean, for instance, one thing, this is, I don't know where I got this from, but I get the sense that when you go kind of toward warmer climate cultures, they tend to be looser than kind of frigid Northern type of cultures. And that may be total, I don't know. I just made it up. But did you find anything like that? That's a really good question because we were really interested to see, uh, is there a reason why these differences exist that might help people make sense of them? And at first glance, there's really no obvious uniting factor between tight cultures and uh, loose cultures. On the other hand, there's no common location, there's no common language, there's no common religion or tradition. Even in some cases, you know, these cultures are separated by thousands of years, for example, Sparta um, to modern Singapore. But what I hunch was in, uh, in this study, in the first study we did on national level tight loose, we thought that it had a lot to do with the amount of threat that groups face. And the idea is this. Tight groups theorize, we theorize, we experience a lot of threat. Threats from Mother Nature, like natural disasters or famine or scarcity, or threats that are man-made, like invasions or pathogen prevalence or even 
population density. And the gist was that when groups have a lot of threats, they need stronger rules to survive, to coordinate. So it would make sense in contexts where they have a lot of threat to have tightness evolve. Whereas with, with contexts where they don't have a lot of threat, that you can afford to be more permissive. You don't need those kinds of strong rules. And, and that's exactly what we found. We um, spent many years gathering data on population density of nations, even as far back as 1500. We gathered data on natural disasters, on food scarcity. We looked at 100 years of invasions of countries. Um, and we, show, we saw a very clear pattern that the countries that have a lot of threat have more tightness. And again, this, you know, as, as a scientist, I always try to see, well, can we replicate that? Can we find right. that in traditional societies, that, you know, from the Aztecs and Inca to the Kung Bushmen uh, and the Inuits? And we, we, we found the same pattern, that in ancient societies, that the groups that were tight, according to our ratings of ethnographies, had much more threat, warfare, famine, and so forth. So it seems to be a pretty important principle that when there's threat, tightness evolves. So, so where do the United States fall on the, on the spectrum? Well, so the U.S. in general um, fell, I would say, moderately loose. Um, this data was collected in, in early 2000s, um, and certainly um, that might have changed since then. But it just it fell moderately loose. And, and so, but, but it's not like this is uh, a set thing within an entire culture, right? I mean, because in the book, you talk about tight cultures having uh, pockets of, of looseness, loose cultures having pockets of tightness, right? Yeah, that's right. I think like, all societies need, you know, even if they're tight, they need some domains where they can kind of be released from that normative pressure. And likewise, even loose cultures need some domains that are tightly regulated. Uh, if we had cultures on either extreme, as we talk about in the book, they tend to be very dysfunctional. So most cultures um, have, even if they're tight, have loose pockets. Uh, for example, um, in Japan, there's a pretty in interesting culture of drinking after, <laughs> yeah. after hours that helps to release the steam and release the pressure to conform. Um, and, and that's very functional in that context. Uh, in the United States, which is relatively loose, we also, on the flip side, have pockets where we're, we're relatively tight. Um, for example, privacy is a domain we pretty tightly regulate from a social norm perspective. If I just kind of show up at a friend's house, even a friend's house, unannounced, they might kind of give me some feedback. Um, and, and actually what's interesting about that is that I think that loose cultures, when they have tight pockets, they evolve to reflect very important values. So privacy is really important in the United States, so it, it tends to be tightly regulated. Um, other contexts like New Zealand, uh, there's a tight norms around being modest because the egalitarian nature of that culture uh, is really important. So people who try to stand out are cut down. They call it the tall puppy syndrome. So it's important to recognize that all cultures have tight and loose domains. They just differ on the number of domains that are regulated versus are given much more permissiveness. And, and, and I would imagine, of course, countries then can change in, in tightness or, or looseness over time. It's not like a, necessarily a set thing. So yeah, cultures can change in tightness and looseness. Um, and they can change rather quickly. Um, but it, the, it, the question is how long lasting is that change? So for example, after the Boston bombing happened, uh, we went out and surveyed people in Boston. And you can see very clearly that people that felt more affected by that bombing started to have a tighter mindset. Um, very quickly, these kinds of tendencies can be evoked. We even can see this in the laboratory. If I bring people into the lab and I uh, tell them about terrorism threats or I activate threats about natural disasters, 
that even if I tell them that the campus at University of Maryland has a huge amount of population density, <laughs> like Singapore, they, they tend to quickly tighten up. They want stronger norms, and they become more, less tolerant of outsiders. But unless those threats are chronic, unless they continue, then those kinds of um, tight tendencies tend to dissipate in loose cultures. They tend to go back to the equilibrium or their attractor state, as they would say in dynamical systems parlance. Uh, so really, when we think about change, it has to be some kind of massive top-down change um, that is helping to reinforce the new level of norm strength that's evolving. So, so maybe, for instance, in the United States situation, then, given the fact that we're separated from a lot of countries by two large oceans, we're maybe naturally a little loose, but things like, uh, you know, World War II or things like threats from terrorism after 9-11 can cause a sort of a temporary tightening up because our threat level all of a sudden goes up. Exactly right. And in the book, I talk about how we can analyze our historical trends very um, uh, very well with tightness, looseness framework and understand why have we changing culturally. Um, and, you know, it's interesting, you know, the United States does tend to have less threat than other cultures, but in the U.S., we also have a lot of diversity in terms of threat. In, in another paper, we started looking at can we differentiate the U.S. states in terms of the amount of threat they have, including things like natural disasters or pathogen prevalence. And we see the same exact pattern. You can see that some states in the U.S. Um, tend to be tight, and it's very strongly connected with the amount of disasters and, and natural threats that they have. And others tend to be loose and have less threats. So in a wide, heterogeneous nation like the United States, we can zoom in, even though we're moderately loose, and see tight pockets and, and predict where they'll be, well, they'll naturally occur. Right. Yeah, I wanted to ask you uh, specifically about that, because that's one thing that really, as an American politics person, that really fascinated me. You have this great uh, tight, loose U.S. map in the book, and I, I focused in on that. And it looked to me like there was a geographical component there. I mean, from my view of it, the tightest regions were definitely concentrated in the southeast and the loosest regions were around the West Coast. Uh, so I guess, first off, am I interpreting that, that right? And if I am, why do you think that is? Yeah, that's exactly right. Um, and you can see that, you know, we can rank order the 50 states uh, in terms of tightness and looseness, in terms of how, constraint, how much constraint and latitude there is. So the U.S. South tends to be tighter, uh, as does some Midwestern states like Kansas and Indiana. Even Pennsylvania veers tight. Uh, and the coasts tend to veer more loose. And what's so fascinating, and I, I talk about it in the book, is some of that is predicted by ecology, like I mentioned. The tight states clearly have much more threat. Kansas has, you know, way more tornadoes than, than uh, Massachusetts. Um, and we can predict why these, why these states are falling tight or loose. It's also the case that we have a founder's effect. You know, the kinds of people that settled several hundred years ago um, in the states also brought with them in their cultural suitcases their own tight and loose mindsets. And so people settling in the South, just as way an example, were coming from cultures that had a high degree of honor orientation. Uh, and honor cultures tend to be pretty tight. They have very strong norms that were evolving to deal with um, weak institutions. Uh, and we still see that living on in the South today. 
Yeah, you know, I also think you, we see that in in the uh, United States military, which seems to be much more of a a southern based sort of sort of thing. And certainly, there's a lot of tight culture behaviors. Like, uh, for instance, when I when I was in the Marine Corps, there was a lot of marching various places, and that seemed to be you know along the lines of what you talked about. So I guess that was that would be one very clearly uh, very tight pocket within the United States. Uh, that's right. Actually, in, in our paper on tight roots in 50 states, we can see that the percentage of a state that is enrolled in the military is correlated with the state's tightness. If When I'm giving talks, for example, in Kansas, you can see public, you know, it's kind of reminders of the military all over the place. And, and that's an important point, that there's a variety of reasons why these states are to be, tend to become tight. Some of it has to do with its natural disasters. Some of it has to do with the kind of um, occupations that tend to dominate uh, in those states. Even um, percentage rural is a, is a predictor. When you live in a, a state that has a lot of rural areas, those areas are, are places where the gossip mill is pretty, it's pretty strong. You know, you feel monitored much more in those kinds of states than you would in a city, for example, where there's a lot of anonymity, where you're breaking norms. It's not going to be noticed by a whole lot of people. So I think what we can do, which is pretty exciting, is, is use these variables to kind of predict and analyze the pockets that we'll see, even if we zoom into a state, where we'll see tight and loose in that state. There also seems to be a, a connection between ideology, at least to a certain extent, because, of course, states in the Deep South tend to be much more conservative out in the West Coast, tend to be much more, more liberal. And that's something that I picked up on right away. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's right. I mean, there's definitely connections between tightness and conservatism on the one hand and, and looseness and liberalism on the other hand. Uh, but the concepts are distinct. And the way I think about it is sort of a level of analysis. I mean, conservatism usually reflects an individual's emphasis on traditional values. Uh, it often manifests as resistance to change, whereas tightness is the seat of culture. It reflects the strength of norms in one's environment. And so, you know, tight states and countries do have more conservatives in them, and loose states have more liberals. There are plenty of conservatives in loose regions, plenty of liberals and tight ones. Uh, in some countries, um, like Iran, for example, uh, there's extremely strong norms, but a lot of liberal attitudes, actually, at the individual level. So we can really sort of disentangle uh, them when we think about them from different perspectives. Oh, yeah. You know, it's interesting to me that it seems that the, when I look at, say, the, the people who tended to vote for Donald Trump, they, mostly they seem to come from areas of the country that seem uh, the tightest. And yet uh, Donald Trump personally is somebody who is, at least in the area of respecting political norms, is about as loose as it gets. I mean, it's just sort of an, an irony there, I guess. Yeah, that's right. I mean, I think as a general principle, and I talk about this in the book, People who have a lot of power have a lot of latitude. Uh, that is to say, they live in looser worlds uh, in general, beyond right. Trump. Um, and people who have lower status, women, minorities, um, and so forth, they tend to live in tighter worlds where there's more constraint. We've seen, for example, that even engaging in the same norm violation, that women and minorities are held to much higher standards um, in organizations, um, for example. Trump himself is, is really an anomaly because he is a quintessential norm violator. But what's ironic about it is that he's appealing to very tight pockets in the United States, particularly the working class, who, according to our data, are very tight with good reasons. Um, and so there's an interesting paradox here about how he's very appealing to tight groups. But on the flip side, they're very tolerant somehow of his norm violations. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> uh- 
Now, you also look at tightness and looseness, not just in terms of, of states and countries, but, and this I think is really interesting, in terms of working class versus upper class people. Can you talk a little bit about what you found there? Sure. I mean, again, we can zoom in and use this template to understand variation in different groups beyond nations and states, but now looking at social class. And we theorized in this recent data we've collected that the working class would be much tighter than the upper class. Um, and in fact, we found that, that the working class across many studies reports greater tightness in their daily life and their households growing up, even in their jobs. Um, and in fact, when we get their zip codes and look at where they live, their, their neighborhoods have more crime, more unemployment. Um, they tend to be in jobs that are much more dangerous, um, and they have more health problems. So they're really a very threatened group. Um, and you, when you think about this is that the upper class has, you know, less threat, and they have a safety cushion so they can afford to break the rules. So it's a really important distinction um, that we see. And, and what's really interesting is how early some of these differences arise. Um, we most recently did a, a study on three-year-olds, and we brought three-year-olds into the laboratory. And we can't exactly ask three-year-olds about the <laughs> level of tightness looseness. But what we could do is borrow some techniques from developmental psychologists uh, from the Max Planck, and we can have them interacting with a puppet. And the puppet, in this case, his name is Max. They're interacting with the puppet. And the puppet is playing a, a game with them with established rules. And, and then suddenly the puppet becomes a non-violator. So it's violating the rules of the game. And, and the simple question is, how do the working class kids, these three-year-olds, react to the puppet compared to the upper class kids? And there was a striking difference. The working class kids got much more upset when Max, the puppet, violated the norms. Um, and they told them to stop doing it. Um, the upper-class kids were much more tolerant and they said, oh, well, yeah, that's kind of funny that Max is violating the, the, the rules. So what's important here is that these differences evolve very early. The parents of working-class kids are, are very attuned to the kind of environment that they, their kids are going to grow up in, the kind of threat they'll face, the kind of danger they'll have on a job. Um, and, and, and they start enforcing strong rules from an early age. Yeah. So now, earlier you, you mentioned that countries can change in terms of their tightness and looseness over time, depending on the level of threat. But, you know, I've always, I've always heard that people's fundamental dispositions tend to get set pretty early on. And once they are, it's difficult to change. So I was wondering what happens when people move up or, or move down in class? Do these tight, loose dispositions show any change? Yeah, this is a great question. And we actually haven't looked at that question empirically, but my hunch is that it's very difficult to change and that often people feel like a fish out of water. Yeah. <laughs> so they change social class. I've seen that in, in academic institutions where we've actually studied some people coming in, first-generation college kids into University of Maryland, and, and it's really like going into a new world. You know, when we go to Japan from the United States or we move from Egypt to Germany, we know that we're dealing with culture shock. We're kind of ready that, you know, there's, there's going to be differences in values and norms. But we don't think about that kind of culture shock happening for the working class, and it really is. I think what we discovered is that a lot of the working class kids, the first-generation kids, they felt kind of um, marginalized. They felt like they were, um, in a sense, separated from their old culture <laughs> and no longer back home with their friends and family, but they're not really part of the new culture. And this, you know, American institutions, universities included, tend to propagate loose individualistic norms, and they're very unstructured environments, and, they, and they're, they're hard to adapt to when you're coming from a tight environment. And, and my hunch is that this is a real issue in terms of, um, in terms of longevity in college for, for first-generation kids. And luckily, 
um, some universities are starting to really deal with this. They're starting to say, you know, guys, like, we can't be so loose. We've got to help people out who are experiencing this culture shock. And so there are, in the book, I talk about some strategies that, you know, we can engage in as a loose culture and helping people transition between cultures. Now, in addition to all this, you also look at, and I, I wouldn't have thought about this, I, I don't know, without reading about it, that you talk about tightness and looseness in organizations as well. And I was really interested in that because sort of my my background is in uh, American political institutions, you know, our, our three branches, executive, legislative, judicial, and, and also uh, the media. Some people call that a fourth branch. So I, I while I have you here, I definitely wanted to ask you what you thought about the tightness and looseness of these of our political organizations. Yeah, that's a great question. And I think, you know, many people would agree that they've been changing so rapidly. And this to, again, the fact that social norms are all around us, and it's only until they're totally dismantled that we recognize that they've been so important to us for so long. And, I mean, for for example, I mean, the executive branch has become, as you can see, you know, super, super loose in terms of what's tolerated and and seeing that, that those norms change so rapidly for someone like the president of the United States who is really uh, causing a lot of problems both within the U.S. and also around the world, of course. Um, and so I think what we see is that even in contexts of organizations where there's a lot of accountability, which tends to foster tightness, which you see in a lot of these branches, that that's being challenged right now. And I think it's really about this feeling of not have, being accountable to, to the American public that's allowing uh, that looseness to evolve. Right. Right. I, I get the sense there's been a similar thing in the media. I mean, there used to be this sort of idea. There were certain types of stories you didn't report on or certain things you did or didn't do. But a lot of that seems to have gone by the wayside as well, making it kind of a, a, a less maybe norm driven and more kind of just, a, uh, I don't know, advertising revenue driven thing. Yeah, I think it's a really interesting point. And one of the things I talk about in the book toward the end is how do we know where to tighten up and where to loosen up. I think it's a really key issue that we need to be thinking about, um, and, and, and we can use culture to our advantage. And, and as an example of that, social media and the wild, wild west you know, yeah. of, of, of online you know, communication is really an example of a place where we're really struggling to catch up and develop new norms for civil behavior. Um, and what's so interesting is we really didn't anticipate that. I mean, psychologists would say, look, when you're not monitored, people will do all sorts of really strange things. <laughs> that that social presence is really needed in order to get people to feel less inhibited. And what's happening online is that people feel like they can engage in all sorts of anti-normative behavior. And, and that's where we're, we're sort of struggling to catch up and figure out how do we live in this new world? We've, as humans, we've developed norms to regulate our behavior in, in face-to-face settings for millennia. And now it's time to really have a national conversation about what kind of world do we want to live in online? And this is what I call sort of the Goldilocks principle. We need a balance. We don't want to, in my view, uh, my personal view, we don't want to get the case where we have so much monitoring like in China. But at the same time, we want so much latitude that, you know, we can have so many, uh, so much problems of this kind of cesspool of anti-normative behavior. So I think we need to try to strike more of a balance in terms of norms on the media. Um, and that kind of speaks to your point about how things can change so quickly in our institutions. Yeah, and you know, right when we started talking, you mentioned uh, that there's really no perfect level or no way to tell certainly what the ideal level is. And I guess that's what the frustration 
is in a way, because there are obviously people, particularly on the right, who are saying we need to go back to a much tighter culture, like say we had the 1950s and there are people on the left mainly who say, no, we need to even loosen up a lot more in certain areas. And it's not like we can run an experiment on this and see what happens and then change it back if it doesn't work. Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, I think that we need to, again, if, if we really want to take culture seriously, we have to act, actively discuss it. We have to negotiate yeah. what domains are really important to stay tight in and, stay, and which domains are stay, to stay loose in. As a parent, I'll just give an example. You know, I'm constantly using this lens to negotiate with my kids. You know, maybe it's not that important that every domain is, is regulated for children. You know, I know there's a lot of debate on sort of the free-range parents versus the, you know, the kind of helicopter parents. Right. But, but what we can do is think about, well, what domains do we need to even discuss? You know, let's think about, you know, do we need to discuss, we need to discuss social media or your appearance or your cleansiness or your study habits? Like, there's differently we can think about domains and then we have to kind of negotiate which are the most important domains to be tight in maybe it's okay to be a slob around the house you know <laughs> that's what i finally gave up on in my household <laughs> um but it's really important to treat people nicely and to do well in school and other things i think you know we can have these kinds of discussions in other levels of analysis also and and, and one of the things that i think we really need to do in the united states along these lines to prevent unnecessarily tightening is to really start having these kinds of uh, conversations around how threatened we really are uh, because in many ways, I think tightness that evolves as a response to real threat is adaptive, but tightening in response to manufactured or exaggerated right. threats can be really destructive. And, and that's my concern about what's happening these days in the U.S. Um, you know, on the one hand, we've seen that many threats from violence to starvation to disease, they've, they've actually declined a lot, but a perception of these threats are really grossly exaggerated. And, uh, you know, many people still think that are really concerned about terrorist attacks from jihadis. When, in fact, terrorist uh, attacks from jihadis have killed about six people per year since 9-11, and compare that to over 300 people drowning in a bathtub every year. <laughs> I, I'm not saying that we shouldn't be aware of terrorism threats, but what's happening is that people overemphasize certain threats, and, and they then get attracted to autocratic leaders all around the world who are promising to, to deal with these manufactured threats. So my, th my thought is that we really need more of a threat meter <laughs> to really discuss, you know, how threatened are we? Well, you know, and, and it seems to me, too, that that there are people clearly uh, really on all sides of all, both sides of the ideological spectrum who use that, that kind of you know, elevating the threat artificially for their own ends, whatever they might happen mm -hmm. to be. And that uh, if I if I understand what we know about human nature, you're the psychologist, so I'll ask you, but we tend to respond much more quickly to threats than a lot of other things. So I would guess it's probably easier to tighten us up than to loosen us up. Am I, am I going too far with that or is that all following? That's correct. And in fact, in some of the research we've done with evolutionary game theorists, computer modeling, we could see that when we introduce a threat into a population, suddenly it quickly tightens, but it takes longer to loosen up once the threat disappears. So there might be some evolutionary advantage to that, to staying on guard. But the problem nowadays, I mean, it's compounded with the leaders who incite fear. It's compounded with social media, where it's hard to detect what's real or what's not. It's also combined with our psychology. When you learn about, you know, an undocumented immigrant committing a crime, it's very salient to you. It's what we call the availability heuristic in cognitive science. And we're not really thinking about the base rates of these behaviors correctly. We overemphasize them in our mind. We don't think about all the other problems we have in this country. And so we tend to ruminate on these available types of facts. So 
it really takes strong leaders to really help us to negotiate what's real and what's not. And in my opinion, that's where where we're having problems um, these days. Um, You analyze, you know, um, speeches of Trump or Le Pen or any other uh, leader, they tend to uh, use that psychology, that cultural psychology of of tightness uh, to gain support among people who are very threatened for real reasons. And we need to focus on those threats. We need to help the working class with the incredible disruptions that are happening uh, versus inventing other threats uh, to unite people. Yeah, absolutely. I couldn't, I could not agree more. Um, I, I have one more question for you. You know, I, obviously this is a long-term sort of thing. This isn't a problem that gets solved, but, but it seems to me that one of the problems we have uh, in, in a contemporary context is that people from different cultures, uh, whether they're tight, loose or otherwise, often talk past each other. And I'm wondering if you have any thoughts on what people from tighter cultures in the U.S., you know, say like someone from, I don't know, Mississippi or what have you, uh, how they can better communicate and understand and talk to somebody from a looser culture, from a California or a Washington or something like that. Is there, do you have any ideas on that? That's a really, that's like the bazillion dollar question, <laughs> yeah. right? And I think what's really important is, is, is having, to, to your point, having more real conversations. I mean, we all know we're in echo chambers and we sort of talk to, you know, people who are like us. That's a basic human phenomenon of, you know, birds that are similar flock together. But what happens in those contexts is that people grossly exaggerate the differences they have with other people. And we just recently demonstrated this in a study that was done in the U.S. and Pakistan. And when we first talked to people in both countries, we realized they have such exaggerated stereotypes of each other. Now, certainly Pakistan is much tighter than the United States. But um, Americans thought of Pakistan as like the most tight, repressive place. They didn't associate Pakistanis with playing sports or singing or dancing um, or having fun family dinners. Uh, And likewise, Pakistanis thought the U.S. was not just loose, but like out of control loose, like that people are walking around half naked, (laughs) that uh, parents are being called, uh, their children are calling the police on their parents because they're restricting their freedom. They had really exaggerated stereotypes. And, and the way that we decided to try to approach this is we said, you know, we can't fly Pakistanis to the U.S. or vice versa, but we can give them a sort of deep dive into each other's lives. And, and the way that we did that is we collected daily diaries from people in the U.S. and Pakistan. And then we randomly assigned people in Pakistan and the U.S. to either receive for seven days, every day, a diary entry uh, from someone in another country or their own country. And they were told this is, you know, for reasons of memory. They weren't told the purpose of the experiment. And what was so fascinating is we were measuring their attitudes over time to see if they changed. And it was really a beautiful ending of the story is that, you know, you saw that over time as they read these diaries, they saw so many similarities. They saw differences. You know, clearly Americans were still waking up with their girlfriends and drinking more. Pakistanis were more likely to be in mosques and having stricter regulations. But on both sides of the aisle there, we saw that they saw so many more similarities and differences. And that's what we saw empirically, that their attitudes changed about each other. Uh, through this simple intervention of, of getting them to see each other's lives in more realistic ways. So in, in large way, I think we should do some of these experiments in the context of the United States, because <laughs> that would help us to get outside of our echo chambers. Yeah, and I, you know, I would, I would think for people who say, well, U.S. and Pakistan, that's such a difference. I mean, it seems to me a lot of people, when you say Mississippi, they think, oh, these intolerant Bible thumpers, you know, who are super rigid, and in California, these you know, libertines who anything goes, and, and yet that, that is unlikely to be true in the vast majority of cases. So the same thing would apply, basically, I would think. 
That's right. And I think also we can have more cultural empathy when we start focusing on the strengths of tight cultures? Um, what are some of the weaknesses of loose cultures? Like, how, what are some of the weaknesses of tight cultures and the strengths of loose, loose cultures? And we can kind of often it's the case that we have this egocentrism biases that we only look at what we're good at. And if we start thinking more like a lawyer, my husband's a lawyer, <laughs> that we start looking at our own liabilities, we can sort of say, you know what, like, we can respect each other's differences because we each bring great things to this nation and and we can try to have a little more empathy for that absolutely that is that is great advice and and with that great advice we will uh, we will close uh, michelle galvin thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me today i really appreciate it thanks for having me that's it for this episode thanks for listening support from listeners just like you is what keeps the show going and we truly do appreciate it if you're interested in joining our great group of Politics Guys supporters, you can go to politicsguys.com and click on the Patreon or PayPal links you'll see there. And if you want to support the show without spending anything, you can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Pocket Cast, Stitcher, or whatever other podcast app you use. Share this episode with your friends and followers and pass along our new show posts and tweets on Facebook and Twitter. Leaving reviews and ratings on iTunes also helps. If you've got a question, comment, correction, or just a random thought you want to share with us, you can reach us at mail at politicsguys.com. Our Facebook page, where you can message us and where we post things throughout the week, is facebook.com slash page. We're also on Twitter, at politicsguys. The executive producers of the Politics Guys are Michael Baranowski, Jay Carson, Trey Orndorf, and Bruce Johnson. Today's show is produced by Michael Baranowski. We'll be back with a new show on Saturday. We hope you'll join us.